Like James just said, there are uh, the sermon series we are going through called The Signs. It's been a great, encouraging sermon series that points to Jesus. There are seven major miracles or major signs that Jesus performed in the Gospel of John, and every one of them is designed to point to Christ. How do we know we are at Islanders? Because there is a sign out front that says, Islanders. That is also how we can tell. Our lives should point to Christ. The miracles that happen in these are specific to us today. Sometimes we think that God doesn't work in the same way that he did these 2,000 years ago, but I want you to think that uh, he does. We pray for people today and they get healed. We have seen him provide in ways that shouldn't happen. And many of you in this room that I know personally have testimony, whether it's a financial testimony, it's a relational testimony about how he's put a marriage back together, it could be an emotional testimony about how he's done some personal healing in your life. God still is in the business of healing today, and he gives us these to say, hey, you guys still need to remain sensitive to what I've done. Remember what I've done. Try me out. I'll do it, and then you grow in your faith, and we can move forward. But there are some impossible situations in our lives. Have you ever heard it said, nothing is impossible? When people say nothing is impossible, generally they, generally they mean, I can do all things. Or If you put your mind to it, you can do anything. Well, that's not completely true, is it? <laughs> you cannot run a marathon in one and a half minutes. It's impossible. There are some things that are impossible. You're not going to climb Mount Everest in a, 10 minutes. You're just not going to do that. What does it literally mean? This phrase becomes valid when I'm taking a test. When something in my life is being tested, or if my son has a test and he prepares for that test, it is possible for him to get this grade or this grade. So there's some involvement from us that creates the impossible which we said was impossible, but in reality it was not impossible. I've heard people say, God has blessed me, when in reality some great things happened to them and they blessed themselves, and then they would go, God has blessed me with some things. After Jesus watched the rich young ruler walk away from following him, he said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to come to faith in Christ. And his disciples are discouraged and saying, what the heck, then what can you do? And uh, in Matthew 19, 26, Jesus' response was back to them. With man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. We often neglect the most important things because we can't see the most important things. But when the testing comes, we feel the most important things. The soul is what hurts. All of us have faced things we desire that seem out of reach to us. We have goals. We, 
we must realize that we could gain the whole world, we can accomplish the goals that we set out, and Jesus said we could still lose our soul. So it's important that we understand why the miracle took place to point the rich man to. In this passage that we're going to read tonight, it's found in John chapter 6. I believe there were a lot of people there, like the rich man. There were Pharisees and Sadducees there. There were poor people there. There were middle class people there. And many people experienced this miracle, but they walked away without salvation. They even followed him later, harassing him, asking him to show them more stuff. Because they weren't interested in the Savior as much as they were the solution, the miracle, the sign. Show us, and then we'll believe. So I want to invite you to stand, and we're going to read verses 1 through 14 in chapter 6 of John. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said, Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these people might eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are, what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the, people, have the people sit down. There's much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributes them to those who were seated. Also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. You can be seated. This is indeed. There's something about this event that was different. For one, all four Gospels record this event. So it's very significant. There's a large number of people gathered following him because last week we talked about he he heals a guy who hadn't walked in 38 years. That's kind of a big deal. Right after he heals him, the Pharisees drill him about why he did it on the Sabbath. They're so hung up on 613 rules that they missed the healing that pointed to Jesus. They even blamed him for doing a magic trick or being sorcerer or with the power of Beelzebub. We try and figure Jesus out, don't we? So 5,000 men 
and women and children. So there's probably 15, could be 15, 20,000 people here. They sit down. Philip, who Jesus knew was pragmatic, looks up and Jesus is looking at him and he says, how are we supposed to feed all these people? They were going to get away, by the way, because they had just been dealing with crowds. They had just been berated by Pharisees. They had just been told that they've had to negotiate all these people. And hanging around a lot of people for a long period of time, extended period of time, can be exhausting. So they get in the boat to leave, and they don't get away. Jesus has compassion over the crowd. He looks at Philip, Mr. Pragmatic, and he says, how are we supposed to feed all these people? And Philip immediately does what? He doesn't look at Jesus. He doesn't talk back to Jesus. He turns from Jesus and looks at the crowd and goes, that is an impossibility. That's an impossible situation. I want us to look at three different elements of how God works in our lives. And the first is that we all have impossible situations. Every one of us is faced with something that's not a flat tire, that, oh, this is impossible, it's in the middle of the day, I'm going to be late for work. Well, yeah, I can call AAA or I can get my buddy to come fix. I'm eventually going to get out of it and it's not going to be near as bad as I thought it was going to be, Right? But then there's those situations that are a little over our head that overwhelm us, that look like there is no way this is going to happen. There's no way I'm going to get out of this. <laughs> Last week we talked about a few different ways and I mentioned them already. Number one, maybe it's a health problem. We have people in our church right now who have cancer that, may take their life. And they did nothing to bring it on. They just found out about it. There's something that you have to deal with. You don't want to. You've tried everything you think of to get rid of it. You've prayed. But it's still there. It feels impossible and sucks your hope. Emotional. Maybe you've told other people what you're struggling with. You've asked for help. You've seen professionals. It's something maybe only you know something about and you feel like you can't share it. It's still part of your life and it's unwelcome. Maybe it's relational. You feel like there's no hope to get my marriage put back together. Every time I try and I feel like I would do anything to make it work, nothing I try and nothing I can think of is working. Financial. You're in a crisis. Maybe you have more bills than money. I think we've all been in one of these spots. But I would say that financial might be one that Philip was thinking about right here. And the disciples thought about quite a bit. As they traveled around, they're basically homeless. They're taking provisions when they get them. They're staying in houses when they're welcome. God might be, and what we often say when we're in a situation that seems impossible is 
I don't know why this is happening to me. What have I done? Maybe the devil is attacking me. When in reality, it could be Jesus looking at you saying, how are we going to feed these people? It could be a test, and God tests us to see if we're serious, really, truly serious about following him with everything that we are. Look at verse 5 and 6. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people might eat? And he said this to test him. He said that to test him, right? Why didn't he test the other 11? Why would he do that? I would say because he knew Philip's heart and he knew that was a good teaching moment for him. That is, God knows the timing, the place. He knows everything about when we need to be tested and where we need to be tested. And generally during the test, it's uncomfortable. I have to believe that Philip could have thought, oh my gosh, why are you picking on me? I'm going to give an answer and 5,000 people are going to see me screw this up. That's embarrassing. Who's been called on in class before or called out in front of your spouse? (laughs) Can I go do this? After Jesus asked him, how are we going to feed these people? It might be that Jesus is testing you. Maybe you're Philip. I want you to think of this second point. God tests only his people. If you don't know him as a savior, he doesn't come to you for a test. He comes to you to draw you to him. Salvation comes first, and then testing comes after. Uh, He's going to ask a believer to tithe, not a non-believer. I don't have to, I don't understand it. Even scripture says it's foolishness to those who don't believe. Philip believed first, and I'm going to prove it to you. In chapter 1, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him who Moses in the law, of whom Moses in the law, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He found the Savior. He said it out loud. He went and got Nathanael. Philip was a believer, and he was convinced and claimed that Jesus was the Messiah. But there's a difference between Jesus being the Messiah, and I kind of believe that he is God, and, there's a, and how to apply that to my life. In the walking around everyday experiences, that's not very practical. I go to church, and I'm a good person, and I do the stuff, and I check the boxes, but how in the world is that going to feed these people? If you believe in error, you're going to live in error. So it's important that we know the God of the universe made everything. He provides everything. He's omniscient. He's like, he, he does what you can't imagine he could do. And that's what the test was for Philip. The third thing I want you to realize in the impossible situation is that his testing produces maturity. It produces growth. You see, Philip, I don't believe, was going to fail after he failed here. And I identify with Philip. 
Because when God calls me to do something, generally I look around and go, I can't do that. About 15 years ago, I got a phone call from someone out of state asking me to consider an interview for a a pastoral position at a church. So what did I say without praying or anything? I have houses, I have a business and too much going on. I have no theological training whatsoever, no. I was hit by a truck very soon after that. I would say that God called Jonah, and he said, Jonah, I want you to go that way. I have an assignment because I love these people. And Jonah looked and goes, oh, no, I hate those people. As a matter of fact, I don't want to see them get better. You see, we have these things figured out. So instead of going that way, Jonah went that way. And we end up kicking against the goads of the very blessings that God wants to show us. And the miracle can't happen And it wasn't him. It was me failing a test because of fear and inventory. I had too much inventory that he couldn't take care of. I basically looked up and went, no, I don't trust you. No. I think we need to get better at realizing that anything that comes at us could be a consideration that maybe we should take. And otherwise, God has been put in this little David Tippins box. This little box that I built out of my own clay, and I stuffed God in it because it makes sense. And anything outside that is me. And I'm God in the walking around. That, I believe, is what Philip did by reaction. We don't do it on purpose. But it's human nature, right? When you tell someone you've been following Christ and he asks us to do this, that, and the other, and they say, well, that doesn't make any sense, what have they done? I don't want to get baptized because I have to do it in front of people. I don't want anybody else to know that I'm saved. This is a personal thing. He says, if you're ashamed before me, I'll be ashamed before you. Scripture, Jesus doesn't ask us to do the easy thing. He asks us to do the thing that's going to bless us. He asks us to follow, which cost him first, and then it's going to cost us something. It was going to cost Philip. I don't even know what to do. So Philip honestly answered him. And even though he got it wrong, I believe that maturity was beginning to take place right then and there. He was beginning to see what he was made of. We find out what we're made of in those situations. And the last thing I want you to see in this is our decisions reveal who we really are. They reveal our faith, the condition of our current faith. Philip had a few options. First of all, they didn't have to stay there in the first place. They could have gone back on the boat and said, hey, Jesus, send them away. That's one way we could get rid of these people. It's going to be nighttime, and they need something to eat. So the first pragmatic answer is, we don't have to feed them. 
As a matter of fact, I need some rest. That could have been a right answer. That wasn't one of the options. Jesus had compassion on him, and Jesus drove him there. So he couldn't get past that. The second option was, Lord, I have no idea how we're going to do this. A half a year's wages couldn't even feed everyone one bite, which is what he said. He just gave the answer. That's how I probably would have answered. Third, Lord, I don't have no idea, but I believe that you're Lord, and I believe you can do it. So what do you want me to do? Be available. So often we believe the right thing about Jesus, about him. He's the Son of God. I believe about him, but I don't know him. Therefore, he has no walking around power in my life because I haven't given it to him. Faith is not what we say we believe in. Faith is situational. It's relational. It's tangible. Genuine faith shows up in the decisions that we make. And you can tell what your faith looks like in your finances by looking at your checkbook. You can tell what your faith looks like in your marriage, because you, look, you ask your spouse. You can tell what your faith looks like emotionally because, am I stressed all the time? Do I want that? How about intellectually? Am I even making any effort at all to know better than I know right now? If we don't change our mind, we're dying in ways that we don't want to. Faith is the way out. I believe that in overall sense, God could handle this. If I had to be involved in this somehow, if I was Philip, and ultimately it's in God's hands, and it's going to be okay, would I be able to say the right answer? And as many times as I rehashed this, I looked back at at least... That situation that I just told you about and four others in my own life in the last 10 years and saw that I failed. Often miracles, salvation's a miracle, but often nothing happens after that. Because we don't free him up. Because Jesus isn't a body walking with me. He promised his Holy Spirit. And on Sundays and Mondays and all these other days, fill me with your spirit, Lord, and give me your power and blah, blah. And you have these peaks and valleys where you do well and then you don't do so well. But that Holy Spirit has the same exact power to feed 5,000 people fish and bread today as Jesus did standing next to Philip back then. And he speaks to us clearly. Scripture says, if you seek me with all of your heart, you'll find me. And God says the very first commandment is just that. To put the Lord your God above everything else. And the reason that he has shackles on in our country is because we put them there. 
Jesus invites us, as he invited Philip, to be a part of the solution. The solution to an impossible situation that wouldn't make any sense. As he would invite you and I to be a part of a solution. There's someone that you work next to day in and day out that's part of the solution that you don't even notice. Because God's hands are shackled in your faith walk. He can open doors that no man can shut. He can close the ones that don't have any business being opened. If we're sensitive to getting up, to rising up, if you will, when he looks at us and he says, how are we going to feed these people? And say, I don't know, but I'm in. I don't know, but I'm in. Lord, there's nothing I can do about this. There's nothing I can do. But I think you can. I know you can. I believe you can. And I'm going to prove that I believe you can. The impossible situation is never impossible when it comes to God. That rich young ruler could have been saved. But he walked away sad instead. The second thing is Jesus gives an improbable solution. It's not one we expect, but it's one that I've touched on already. In verse 8 through 11, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? In other words, how in the world is that going to make any significant difference at all? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was a lot of grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. And so also the fish, as much as they wanted. We've mentioned this every week. No fireworks, no drum roll. Jesus sits down, blesses the food, and begins to distribute the food that he did. The wine, they noticed at the end, there's plenty of wine. Some people didn't notice that he did anything. What did his mom say? Do what he says. He did it, and then they said, oh my gosh, this is the best wine I've ever had. The blessing. Jesus sits down, blesses the food, and begins to distribute it. Here's what's interesting. In this passage, in this, in John's version, he gives a big picture view. He just says it's distributed. In Matthew's account, Matthew says he gave it to the disciples and they distributed it. Either way, it got distributed. Here's what I want you to see. The improbable solution always involves people. It involves us. He wanted the disciples to share in the distribution. So he shares the gospel with you, which came from where? Someone else. You heard, and by hearing, something inside you shifted 
You received the gospel and were saved, which is a miracle, and you knew it when it happened. Some, his spirit made intercession with your spirit because someone else was faithful to do that to you. When was the last time you shared your faith? When was the last time you led someone to Christ? When was the last time you had compassion for a crowd, especially a crowd that maybe you weren't looking forward to going to see? We got the holidays coming up. Who are the craziest people on earth? Your relatives. They're going to be cool around me, but you know darn well you don't want to see them. The closer we get to somebody, the smellier they are, right? God can use available people. And we have to be available to be used, whether that's in our family or in public or at work. In Luke, Mary was listening to an angel tell her that Jesus was going to be her offspring. And Mary, a little concerned, the angel explains and says, you know, by the way, Elizabeth's going to give birth to John the Baptist also. And what's interesting in verse 37 of Luke chapter 1, the angel says nothing is impossible with God. Mary's thinking this whole situation is impossible. And that was the angel's response. And then Mary's response to that, resolve. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. He uses available people. Amen? Second, he uses what we offer him. It's one thing to do an inventory. It's another thing to offer him the entire inventory. What I tend to do is I go count my inventory and I say, that belongs to me, that belongs to me, that belongs I can't let that go, right? So I have all this stuff that keeps piling up and he really doesn't get the best of anything. When in reality... It ought to just be passing through. How much am I doing to give? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all that we ask or imagine according to his power at work within us, Andrew does the inventory. He says, we got this and this and here it is. He collected it from the boy. It wasn't enough to just look at it and go over there. That's where the food is. There had to be a physical exchange. And when it touched the Savior's hand, it just bountifully exploded. And he kept handing basket after basket after basket after basket. Because our Savior takes what little you have to offer and multiplies it to show you it was him. And not you. He started with a very few people and what they offered and feeds thousands of hungry people. So when we're in impossible situations, we are to give all that we are and all that we have and just leave the rest up to him. Finally, the ultimate satisfaction. We think the ultimate satisfaction often is going to be the solution. It was the food that they got fed, so he didn't have to worry about it, and now we can go back to teaching because, well, they can make it to breakfast and they can make it back home. Problem solved. 
John 6, 14, verse 14 says this. The people that had gathered around Jesus realized they just experienced this miracle. And when they saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Notice they didn't say, this is the best bread I've ever had. This is the best fish, and it's cooked perfectly. This must be the prophet we're waiting for. They were right, but he was so much more than just a prophet. In this same chapter, a little bit later, in verse 30 through 35, they said to him, then what sign do you do? This is when they follow him. The Pharisees, the rabbis, that we may see and believe you. He just feeds fifteen to 20,000 people, and they say, what sign are you going to give us now? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it was written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you that bread. Moses did not provide the manna. That was God that provided the manna. You've got it messed up. God gave the sign, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. The rabbis taught that when the Messiah came, he would duplicate the miracle of the manna. So they're expecting that to happen, and in reality, he gave them himself. He duplicated the miracle of the manna. He gave them living water that they would never thirst, he told them. He gave them the bread that they would never go hungry. They weren't satisfied. Even with the miracle they had, they wanted more. We want more solutions to more impossible situations, and then I'll believe. When Jesus said, I am enough, I'm enough. Are you satisfied is the question. Are you satisfied and is he enough? If not, you can be. What does all this mean? When we face things in life that are impossible, God doesn't want you to react to the situation, but he wants to change your instincts through maturity to look to him. To look to him proactively, reactively, every area of your life should be an instinct and a response to the love of the Father, knowing that he wants what's best for you, and he knows your situation better than you do, and he loves you, and go back to where this started. He gets out of the boat with his disciples, and he had compassion on you. He's the only one who holds the power, holds the key to the power over sin and death. There's an impossible situation beyond all other impossible situation, and it's death. Physical death because of our sin, spiritual and eternal separation from Jesus Christ. He's saying, I am the answer to the biggest problem that you could have in your life. And I want to solve it. Do you trust me? And after 
we trust him with that, the rest starts to make sense. Philip was able to, you know what? I'm going to think before I speak next time. Maybe I've been too pragmatic. We see Thomas and we want to crucify him because he says, hey, when I see the scars, then I'll believe. But you know what? Every one of us in our own special way has to see to believe. As the band comes, I want you to know that you know that you know where you stand. In the walking around daily life, no matter what kind of impossible situation you're in, if you're a believer, you just trust that to him and know that there's a plan there. That's not necessarily the enemy. Maybe it's a test. Maybe something's going on that he wants to fine-tune in you to make you closer to him. Maybe that's it. Maybe he just wants to draw you back. He is your ultimate need, I think, is what this miracle teaches us. He was everyone's ultimate need in a sea of uh, 20,000 people. And you fast forward to verse 40, and he says, For my Father's will, this is God's will for you, this is Jesus Christ, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. Jesus, when we lift him up, our goal isn't to build buildings and big churches. Our goal is to lift him up. Why? Because he's worthy. Because of what he did for me and you. And you know it. You like Philip. You like Thomas. You like Andrew. We can be pragmatic and practical, or we can just give our all. I can give of who I am, laying my body down a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. For that's my spiritual act of worship. And then I give whatever my inventory says. Give. For God so loved the world that he gave. And then he wants us to give what he gave. He wants us to share. I'm going to invite y'all to stand. I'm going to invite y'all to pray and worship where you are. And I'm going to invite you to ask yourself, do I have the main thing right? Is he my Lord and Savior? Do I really believe or do I just say that I believe because I've gone to church? Maybe you have an impossible situation that you've just been struggling over that you just need to pray for. The altar's open. I'm down here for uh, prayer. If you need prayer for anything, I just want to invite you at this point.